Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Francesco Duina, who is a professor of sociology at Bates College. He is the author of several books, including Winning, Reflections on an American Obsession. Uh, We are going to talk about his latest book, uh, which I highly recommend uh, and am extremely grateful he's gone out and produced. It is called Broke and Patriotic. Why Poor Americans Love Their Country. Francesco Duino, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on. So, so uh, I guess describe for us the sort of uh, dilemma or seeming contradiction that led you to, to do this research. Uh, sure. Well, there are several reasons that uh, led me to it. I think the primary reason is that one would imagine uh, that the citizens of the United States that have the least in terms of financial resources would uh, uh, at the very least have some sense of resentment or or tensions towards their country. And uh, instead, what you find is that by essentially most measures of patriotism, or, or we can define that later, but you know, love of country or even a sense of but the country is superior to other countries. It's the best country in the world. You find that, in fact, they score very, very high. They score higher than the poor in other advanced nations. Right. And they score higher than, the, the, you know, a little bit higher than, than working class and middle class Americans. While at the same time, of course, you know, by most measures, their future looks very bleak. You know, they have um, the least intergenerational intergenerational mobility of, um, you know, of any other set of poor people in other countries. So the chances that their kids will achieve the American dream is, is are very low. Historically, also within the United States history, very low. Right. And, you know, wages and hours worked and uh, Social Security benefits. And so the, the question was, why are they so patriotic when... So many things in their lives are, are, you know, would, you know, would, would lead to perhaps somebody thinking about, well, maybe they shouldn't, they shouldn't be, maybe they should be asking questions and, and wondering why they love the country so much. And you didn't try to figure this out in your office. You went out and interviewed lots of people, poor patriotic Americans in Alabama and Montana, right? That is correct. So what I did was I spent time in both of those states for various reasons, primarily because, statistically speaking, uh, those are hotbeds of patriotism among the poor in the United States. I mean, you could have gone to any state of the Union and find out that uh, over 90% of poor Americans are highly patriotic. So it wasn't difficult to pick two states. Any two states would have done the job, but I wanted to pick two states that were especially uh, high up there and also different from each other, so I could hear different spins and perspectives. And um, sure, I spent time in laundromats, bus stations, used clothing stores, homeless shelters, the streets. I spoke to uh, 63, it turns out, Americans um, for about each person was probably around, I know it was uh, close to 45 minutes on average. 
and of course recorded them and um, you know eventually transcribed them. I came away with about a thousand pages of transcribed text. So that's what I did. I went yeah. to uh, urban centers as well as rural areas, of course, and I varied in terms of respondents by gender, by race, uh, by religious orientation, by whether they had served in the military or not, uh, by ethnicity, you know, all the kinds of measures you would think might make a difference or the kinds of stories that they would tell. And, and it seems that you'd found some variations across demographics and between those two locations, people in Alabama, uh, grateful to the government for helping them a little bit, and people in Montana, grateful to the government for not helping them at all. Uh, but, but largely you found agreement. You found the same sort of, uh, of beliefs uh, leading to people's patriotism, right? That is, that is correct. So the... Uh, there were some differences, of course, and um, differences also along race. For example, I found that in many ways African-Americans in the South were the most patriotic, yeah, especially the older African-Americans, which surprised me considering the history there and their their history there. Sure. Um, and um, as well, of course, yes, large differences, significant differences in terms of stories between Montana, sort of libertarian spin there versus Alabama, um, as well as, you know, rural versus urban uh, questions of hunting and gun rights came up a lot in rural areas. So there were differences, but certainly the themes that came up, whether because I would have certain questions I would ask them sort of prompt, you know, prompt, like, what do you associate with the flag? Or, or because we got deep into the conversation. Ultimately, the same themes would uh, would emerge from our discussions, and I was able to, you know, um, uh, weave them together into three or four general narratives, if you will. And can sure. you can you tell us briefly what those were? For sure, yeah. Uh, one is that the that America is the land of uh, of freedom, and this was sort of the most obvious one, the one that I that I expected the most. And it uh, concerned both physical freedom and uh, mental freedom. So it wasn't merely a question of I'm free to think what I want and do what I want, but also I'm free to uh, move around and uh, to go from one place to the next without feeling any, any, any worries, without feeling that I'm constrained. Yeah. Uh, so that was, a, that was a big one, and, you know, even to the point where I met a, a young fellow in Montana um, who told me, that, uh, you know, he was homeless by choice, and uh, it was a sabbatical from life, and lived in the, in the field, and right. slept in the field. And, um, you know, when I asked him about that, he would say, well, you know, in America I can do that, but, you know, in other countries I would be sort of herded off and, you know, brought to jail, you know. Yeah, I and would... of course... I, I, I was going to say I was a little surprised, I admit, by how much so many people talked about the freedom to move around, as if in other countries you can't move around. And it, it struck me that it sounded like they were describing freedom from prison, but they always talked about it as freedom from, democ from, from dictatorship, freedom from living in a dictatorship. But it seemed like their reference mm -hmm. point really was what is so common in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, incarceration. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, there were. You're right. The pr primary, one of the main reasons was, was you know, sort of freedom from dictatorships and people watching you and telling you where to go or where you cannot go. However, there were a few who said, "Look, um, you know, if um, 
you know, if I commit a crime here in the United States, I go to jail and uh, I'm out in three months. Whereas, and, you know, this is a different kind of discussion we can get into maybe later, they would say, well, in Germany, you know, they cut your tongue off. Or in uh, right. Saudi Arabia, if they catch you, they, they chop off your hand. And so I have a... But one, of those is, but one of those is insane and the other one is actually true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's right. So one of the things that... One of the things that, in hindsight, after you know, after spending time there and, and chewing on the what I heard and, and talking to people about this book, I kind of realized was that, uh, in many ways, the respondents held on to beliefs that sometimes were true, you know, and sometimes were not true, and that they juggled these things in their minds seamlessly, you know, and and they. So that's this contradiction that they have, right? They about even if I would push them towards them, you know, I would say, well, you can you can hunt in Canada too. You don't have to be in Montana to be able to hunt, right? Uh, it's not the only country in the world where you can hunt. They would kind of balk at that a little bit, but then they would sort of do some mental gymnastics um, and say, well, true, but here it's really enshrined in our document. Right, our legal legal documents, and so I feel like it's it's more protected, it's more real. Uh-huh. And so there was a lot of a lot of of course misconceptions which I talk about, but also um, you know sophisticated I would say in some ways you know juggling of contradictions and then resolving those contradictions. But keep you... in mind, you know, I ask them questions that they most of them had not really thought about too much in advance, right? So it was sort of impromptu conversation. You, you, so, I, I think you were very generous and very forgiving uh, and very respectful uh, in your interviews and how you mm-hmm. describe them. Uh, but these are people who told you that in Canada they've got health care, but it's a dictatorship. And mm-hmm. in Russia they'll cut your tongue out. And in communist Japan they'll cut, mm-hmm. off, your, cut off your head. And right. in, in Sweden they give you free college, but everyone flees the minute they graduate from their free right. college. I mean, isn't there, don't you get a sense that there's some willful self-deception going on here? Well, that's a good question, right? So, um, in a way, you could argue it's willful self-deception, but on the other hand, you have to think about the order of importance of these thoughts for them. These were not thoughts that came out first when I spoke to them. Uh-huh. There were thoughts that would come out when I pushed them to think about these things. And so they were not, in the order of things, they were not at the top of their mind. And of course, if I pushed, all these kinds of misconceptions, um, you know, came up. But at the same time, I would say, I mean, is it willful self-deception? Yes and no, right? We all um, tell stories about ourselves and about our countries. Most national narratives are deceptive, uh, whether it's Japanese national narratives or French national narratives or what have you. And uh, this is just one national narrative, which happens to, in this case, and I would say in the case of most Americans, actually, happens to of uh, central importance for self-definition, for the degree to which they sure. use it to define themselves. And so it's a central element of their identity. 
Well, yeah. I, was, I wasn't suggesting yeah. Canadians never delude themselves, and I wasn't suggesting right. that I never delude myself. I, I, right. uh, but it, it seems that the, the poor in the United States are a little more patriotic, and they're also a little more religious. And they don't really, in many cases, draw a line between the two. I mean, they told you that, that, that God favors the United States over, over every other country, right? That's right. That's right. That was very prevalent. Uh, I know that uh, in, in your work, you talk about that, too. And uh, certainly they said that. That was a very dominant theme, that, you know, God loves everybody, uh, but loves the United States a little bit more uh, because of the United States' history with religious freedom, because this country was supposedly founded by people who were fleeing from religious you know, persecution. And um, and because the people of the United States historically have paid a lot of attention to God and uh, tried to please God. And so that was sort of the narrative. And there was also a personal narrative that they would come up with that had to do with, you know, I, I by the way, personally am in touch with God. I speak to God every day. God has saved me, you know, from my troubles. And or a great line that I heard, you know, was God gives you double for your trouble from this poor woman in uh African-American woman in Alabama in a homeless shelter, you know, who was an aspiring artist, but, you know, an elderly woman. And right. Yet she would say, there are great things for me, you know, I had, I, had, I had for me, which is another theme, a theme of optimism that I, that I heard that, yeah. was linked to, we, we, that was linked to America, you know, um, that was linked to, I'm optimistic, and I'm optimistic because, you know, this is the land of milk and honey, which is another great theme, one of the right. two or three great themes I heard, which is, this, this is the land of milk and honey, and just because I have failed, right, yeah, just because I have failed, that doesn't take anything away from the country, the greatness of the country. Right. And, and that's a very important point, because we, we, I people already know this from statistics and so on and so forth, but we know that Americans in general... Uh, attribute their life trajectories to themselves and not to outside variables, which for a sociologist like me is sort of very counterintuitive, right? And, <laughs> and, and, and yeah. did you inform them that other wealthy countries have greater upward mobility? That they oh, have yeah. A, yeah. And, and then yeah. what do they say? Yes, I, towards the end of the interviews, you know, the discussions, they became discussions, and very personal and emotional discussions often. You know, I would say, but, you know, but, but, but all these things you tell me, many of them, I could tell you that you would be better off in Sweden or France or Spain even, you know, um, you would. And so, you know, what do you, why do you hold on to these things so much, you know? And uh, then, then they, they, they kind of got lost a little bit there. They say, well, but, I, but, I, but, I, but I've never been there. Or I've been there a few times and I didn't like it. Or, well, yes, but... You know, are they are those countries premised on? Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, David, right? But basically, sure. they would say, are those countries premised on an explicit social contract that recognizes the worth of every individual and the possibilities of individual self determination? Yeah, it it, it and, they, and, they they yeah. know the founding documents, right? It really is the right. the rhetoric, whether it was ever intended and whether it's ever been adhered to. It's the 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 myths of the founding rhetoric of the United States that they that they love. That is correct, and and uh, you can't you know I mean they are not. 
you know, wrong about that. I mean, they're somewhat wrong. There are other countries that kind of have similar things, but very few countries on Earth, you know, were started as countries, effectively, with an explicit, on the foundations of an explicit social contract. Because, you know, if you think of India, China, any European country, maybe even France, even though they had a revolution, there was a country there before, and then they came up with contracts. Right. Whereas in the United States, uh, maybe Haiti, there are a few examples, you know, uh, you have the beginning based on a, an abstract set of principles, right? And they knew those principles, and they, I should say, they also they also differentiated, and this is something that I kind of dawned on me afterwards, after even I wrote a book and all that, just talking to people about it, and I would have stressed it more in the book, they differentiate between the nation and the state. So not only do they take uh, personal responsibility for their you know, life trajectories, good or bad, but they also say, look, you have to differentiate between the government, what the government, what governments have done, and what the nation is about, what the you know the founding documents are about. Of course, the government and the state has not always lived up to the founding document. That's that's for sure. And African Americans were the first ones to tell me that. Mm-hmm. But like Martin Luther King, we need to recognize that the documents are in fact excellent, and we need to go back to those documents. And so that narrative also came up, and their ability to say, yeah, the government, the government may not be doing great things, a la Montana, for example, that's what I would hear, but the nation is, is, the, is the key. And so, But if the uh, government uh, bombs another nation, it's doing right, and it's doing an act of philanthropy. It's, these wars on Iraq and many other countries are benefiting those countries, whether they're grateful or not. It's, right. it's generosity. And, and, right. and then the other countries are described as inferior to the United States, often because they're at war. Even if it's the U.S. military engaged in those wars using right, money that right. these people actually need, uh, it, that it's, it's, that's a sign of inferiority of those other countries, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, that's right. I mean, they weren't... We can pick, uh, you know, at their logic a lot, you know, and in many different ways. Of course, yes. They uh, were attribute effectively, what you're saying is they were attributing the negative qualities of some of those countries to those countries, whereas, in fact, it may very well be reflections of things that we have done to them, you know. Um, but, you know, they would say, well, um, considering history and considering what other countries have done to other countries, we have been a benevolent empire on the whole. And they didn't use those words, but, you know, in right. general, when we go in, uh, we go in with ideas that are, you know, it's kind of like uh, when uh, Hillary Clinton bombed uh, Libya, you know, uh, Gaddafi. Sure. And as always, what they point to is, you know, it's not us doing it. I mean, we are doing it, but we're not doing it out of our own self-interest. We're doing it because we're enlightened with these universal principles of human rights and protection of minorities and all of these things. And unfortunately, it falls upon us to make sure that those evil dictators out there don't abuse their people and deprive them of those rights. So it's almost like a duty that we have. Right, right. right. Because and who so, would destroy Libya if, if we didn't do it? Uh, right, exactly. And yeah. so it's actually a sacrifice. Like you said, generosity. And that's another theme that, of course, came up a lot, was 
America is the most generous country on earth. America is the land of milk and honey, but also abundance uh, in the world. It just overflows with goodness, you know. Yeah. And these are people who have served. These are people yeah. where people die in Iraq and Afghanistan. These are not, you know, right. Um, you know, they contribute contribute to the military more than uh, the other economic For classes sure. in the United States. Right. So they, you know, and yet they would say, well, you know, we did it because we are a great nation and recognize these universal truths, right? And and, uh, and so th- and so that you see gives them a sense of dignity. And and yeah. then they tell you that other countries uh, have no due process and good legal system. They're <laughs> savage. They commit right. public executions, uh, and right. then some of them turn around and right. support public executions. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, that's right. There was one, one person in particular I think you're referring to, a uh, really remarkable <laughs> sequence there, where he went on and on you know, about that, and then he said, well, you know, but, well, I would ask him, what would you do? Well, you know, we still should drag him out and hang him in public, you know? Right. Make the, you know, because even if you know, they rape somebody, wouldn't that's the right way, you know? Uh, but then I would say, well, what about due process? And they would, he would say, well, I mean, after due process, then <laughs> he do that. Uh so of course, you know contradiction, contradiction. So this there is why as well. this is why I think you know education might help and being better off and more secure and safe it might help, but uh, it, it's largely a it's largely a, a religious belief. Uh, it's not you know something arrived at through logical rational. Thought. And, and I think there's even a parallel to, to U.S. racism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. white Americans for centuries could think, well, at least I'm better off than the non-white people. Everybody in the United States now can think, well, at least I'm better off than the non-Americans. Right. Right. And, and I mean, the religious part is very important. You know, there is long-standing research that suggests, that argues that, you know, America's religious religion is the civic, it's civic commitment, it's civic culture. There is no God, you know, as far as God is concerned, it has to do with civic, civic stuff. Nationalism is America's religion. Right. And, and that, you know, and that's consistent with what you're saying. And I would, I would add to that the fact that, you know, there's a, there's a subsequent, subsequent question, which is, but why don't they hang on to something else? Right. I mean, I, maybe one day I'll go to other countries and do the same exercise and ask there what they, you know. And I know that they won't be as attached to their national identity. Right. And so, what, why is that the case? Well, I think is the, I think part of the answer has to do with the fact that culture in the United States is a younger country, right? A thinner, if you will, a thinner culture. Yep. And in a thinner culture. You can't hang on to, there's not much to hang on to. The one thing that's really thick is this sort of sense of nationalism. You know, as, as you pointed out in your work, you say, well, there's flags everywhere, national anthems everywhere, and pledges of allegiance. Exactly. Because if you didn't have that in a country of this size, uh, with the history that it has, with the youth that it has in terms of history, uh, what else are you going to hang on to, right? What else is going to give you a sense of purpose and dignity and order and you know, like that. And, well, this definitely can do that for you. It gives a direction and a sense of priorities and, and, a, and a sense that you, because of the content of it, it also recognizes, you know, you as a worthy thing. The contract itself is is an interesting contract. I mean, the one, the, 
the prickball I spoke with, I remember very well, said, you know, I have, I have nothing, but I have the worthiness of an individual as recognized by the founding father. So I am as worthy as the president. And then he said, he said, you know, in fact, I met the president. I was serving in, I think, in Vietnam, and there was a big dinner for Thanksgiving, and there I was with the president. What country gives you that? What country gives you the recognition of worthiness as a person, regardless of your money or status in other ways? Yeah. Well, I mean, that is powerful stuff. We're going to have to figure out a, a, an answer to that uh, in smaller communities or in the global human identity or something. Uh, because, right. uh, you know what, I, we've just got about three minutes left. I, I, what I think would be interesting, I, I'm sure you're working on something else now, but I would love to see a similar book on slightly more wealthy Americans, mm -hmm. because it seems that... Uh, you know, you ought to resent the creation of poverty and suffering, whether it's impacting you yourself or not. Uh, and the patriotism is only slightly less among uh, wealthier Americans than, I mean, it seems that, that what you've already learned uh, probably applies in slight variation uh, to everybody in this country, wouldn't you think? Well, that's a good question. The numbers are very similar, you know, in the end, instead of 95%, say 87% or something like that, depending on the proxy that you use to measure it. But I think the content of the narrative would vary a little bit. So when they say freedom, when a poor person says freedom or, or the land of milk and honey and generosity, uh, they mean one thing. Mm -hmm. I think when a richer person says freedom or the land of generosity and you can you know, make it here, they mean something different. Uh, and so I think that the, the kind of the casing will be similar, but I think the content will be quite different. Just like it was different for African Americans in the South, vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis, say whites in the South, or you know Native Americans in Montana. So the, the language, the the, the the thread is similar, but then when you open it up, you see that it's sort of filled in with different different stuff. And yeah, I think it would I think it would vary. I actually think it would vary. I, I wonder what, uh, assuming that you agree with me that it might be useful to reduce the patriotism, uh, what do you think, what pieces of information, I mean, if people really knew what Scandinavia was like, rather right. than imagining people flee when they get their degree, right. because, you know, the, the Washington Post found that people favor bombing a country uh, in direct proportion to their inability to correctly place it on a map. Wow. Right? So it, what particular pieces of information do you think might be helpful to people? Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, I mean, education for sure would work. I think that uh, maybe it would be both you know, con con specific content, but also a little bit of toning down of the national rhetoric, you know? Yeah. We don't need to have the Pledge of Allegiance. My kids recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Every morning, yeah, school. yeah. Uh, there's, there's a flag every, you know. There's a national anthem play for every basketball. What does the basketball game have to do with the national anthem, right? There's a lot of that stuff, right? It's a good question. And, uh, but, but you know, David, the thing about it is, is that the modern world is built that way, one way or another. There isn't really an answer to that question. It, it, we still live in a world of of nation states, and so we're kind of trapped in them. Uh, I would love, you sense it correctly. I would love for there to be a world without nation, but. Uh, how that would be substantively configured and how, how that would work is a different question. You know? But definitely, nationalism is a big problem in many ways, but it's the case, the content, it's the, it's the frame in which things happen.
So it's a difficult question, man. Well, this is a wonderful book that raises difficult questions. I highly recommend it. We've been speaking with Francesco Duina. The book is called Broke and Patriotic, Why Poor Americans Love Their Country. Go out and get it. Uh, Francesco Duina, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. It was fantastic. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time. <laughs>